anyway, I don't, know, um, I don't know if you guys have ever had one of those weeks, one of those days or weekends in which you have one kind of plan, an agenda, a schedule that you think this is how my day is going to pan out, this is what I, want to, what I want it to look like. Yesterday was one of those days, Saturday mornings is my morning off, and so I usually hang out with the kids, work on the house, whatever, and yesterday woke up and me and the, me and the middle child, Ezra, we decided we're going to go get the girls breakfast in bed, and so we headed out and we went to our favorite bakery, we got him breakfast, all that kind of stuff, which happened to be next to Home Depot, so we had to go there for a little bit because, you know, he needed to pick up a few things, and so... We go to Home Depot, we make it home, great, hung out the whole morning with the family. I remembered, okay, I need to go get a couple supplies that I forgot at, uh, at the lumber yard. And so I go to the lumber yard, and it's about lunchtime at this point, and I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon working on the house, and of course, come to service. And so I get to, to the lumber yard, picking up some supplies, my phone rings, and it's my dad. And I go, hey, what's up, dad? What's going on? And he says, hey, man, what are you doing? You just wake up? <laughs> no, grandpa jokes, grandpa jokes. I say, no, dad, I've been up for like five hours now. Thank you for asking. Uh, what's up? He says, well, you know, I was out of town last week, and that's, you know, I spoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was out with my friends, and we were having a good time, and we were riding quads and pretending like we're lumberjacks and stuff like that. Do you remember that? And I'm like, yes, Dad, I remember. And he goes, yeah. Uh, we came across some poison ivy, and um, all week I've been thinking I've got it under control, I've got it under control, and it's just gotten worse. And it's, like, really bad today. Do you think you'd go ahead and cover me for this weekend? Cover you. Like, as in, like, three hours from now, you want me to get up there and speak? <laughs> He's like, yeah, can you go ahead and do that? I go, okay, Dad, look, um... I know that it looks like we just make this up while we're up there, and uh, that, you know, we're just talking, <laughs> but it takes a little bit of studying, you know, and he's like, yeah, you can use my notes. I'm like, no one can use your notes because I don't know what they say, and so that's not going to happen. He goes, dude, you're going to have to handle it. I said, okay, here we go, and so um, for the last two services and this service, I have pretty much got to make up a sermon on the spot, all right? So this is about as freestyle as we're going to get. Woo! Excited about that. God bless you. Jeez, okay. Yeah, you, you clap now. We'll see if it's like that at the end. So I guess the place that we should start is um, with a review of what we talked about last week. Luckily, last week I wrote a sermon and I delivered it. And uh, if you were here, I'm going to give you a quick recap. If you weren't, let me get you up to date. And so what we talked about last week is we, um, we talked about this book that I read a while ago and I kind of revisited lately, uh, which is the, the book Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And in that, he pretty much says all great companies, all great businesses and institutions, they all begin with the question of why. Why do we exist? And that's what makes them great. And so he has this thing called the golden circle, and I have a graph that looks like that. That's not it. That's, there is a circle there, but that's not the golden circle. Okay, there we go. Golden circle. Looks like this. Why? The purpose. This is why we exist, the motivation, the cause, the belief. Then we have the next step, which is the how. This is the process, specific actions taken to make the why happen. And then finally, the what, the result, the product or the service. And his whole thing is everybody knows what they do, whether it's at their job or in their relationships, because that is simply what you are up to. Everybody can answer that question. Some people know how, very few people know why. And if you want to be great, you have to understand why you exist, your motivation, your purpose. And so we began to apply that to different arenas of our life, specifically um, kind of our, our goals in life. And so one of the things that we looked at was, what do most people that I know, at least around here and in America, what is their why? 
And we eventually came to the conclusion that the American dream is uh, personal satisfaction or happiness. That's what motivates a lot of people, is this pursuit of happiness and just want to be satisfied in life. And so the process is they go through things like date night and they read great books to help raise their kids and they send their kids to good schools. They try to land that dream job, create this marriage. And the end result is the picture-perfect Instagram family in which uh, you're an incredibly good-looking couple with these cute kids. You go on these vacations. It is the American dream, and that's what so many of us are pursuing. And, And we said that's not a bad thing. In fact, that sounds kind of good to me. You know, I wouldn't the American dream, but that can't be the point of life. There has to be something bigger. In fact, if we look at the people that we most admire, it's not because they achieved the American dream. It's because they had something bigger. They, they, they had a purpose that was larger than themselves. And one of the issues is happiness is not even attainable. I'd never met someone who lives in a state of happiness. They have moments of happiness for sure, but it's not even something that I think that we can have. And so we talked about what should our why be? And as Christians, this is kind of what it looks like is the why is to know and make Christ known. That should be our motivator. That should be the the thing that we are pursuing in life. How? Well, the process is we're going to live like Jesus. And then what result is we get to have eternal impact in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. And so when you compare those two, the American dream is fine, but it can't be, there's no comparison between that and the Christian dream. And so today, I I, I promised last week that we were going to talk about the how, and I kind of built it up. I was like, oh, it's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. We're going to talk about the how. It's going to, because I thought Doyle was speaking. So I was like, ah, you have to live up to it, not me. I wouldn't have said all that if I knew it was going to be me, but we're going to try to talk a little bit about the how, is if Jesus is our why, How do we begin to live like him? And I want to specifically talk about the arena of our relationships. And and the how is is kind of a complicated thing. If you look at the how of an organization, let's take one of the biggest in the world right now, which is Amazon. If you think about the how of Amazon, it is incredibly complex. It goes from placing an order to arriving at your door, sometimes in the same day. There are so many things in that process that have to happen. There are employees that have to be hired. There are systems that have to be in place. There is equipment that has to be bought. There are so many things in order to accomplish that how. And in fact, as a church, we understand a little bit about the complica- the, uh, the, the, how complicated it can be to achieve our why. Because we as a church, we have... Tons of ministries. You guys are involved in leading tons of things. It takes hundreds of volunteers to run this place every single week. There are employees. There are facilities. There's a the technology. There's a ton of stuff in order to accomplish our why. But I think if we were to step back, there are some fundamental things, some big picture elements that we have to have. So as a church, big picture fundamental things is weekend services. Those are big things. Those are things that like, if we were to look at the how, that would be a big chunk of it. Or we have this thing called Rooted, and we have children's programs. We have tons of big chunks that we can start with those and then kind of refine and kind of focus in on what all of those things are. Well, I think the same thing is true of following Jesus. It can be a really complicated and difficult thing. In fact, you're going to spend, if you're a Christ follower, you're going to spend the rest of your life learning about what it looks like to live like Jesus and then trying to implement it in your life. But So I guess my point is, today we're going to tackle a couple of the more fundamental things of living like Jesus, especially when it comes to our relationships. But this is just the bigger picture, the fundamental parts. And so the question I have for today is, uh, what does it look like to live like Jesus in our relationships? 
So I want to look at a passage in the uh, Gospel of John. And if you're not a Bible person, let me give you a little background here. Is the Bible is divided into two. You got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is everything before Jesus. And then the New Testament is from Jesus' life and then the early church. And so then you divide the New Testament. There are these four books at the beginning of the New Testament called the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are the life stories of what happened with Jesus written by eyewitnesses. They call them the disciples. And they're telling, here's what Jesus' life looked like. Here's what he said. Here's how he died. Here's the resurrection. And they're really giving a biography of who Jesus uh, was. And so in the book of John, it's unique compared to the other three uh, because not only is an eyewitness like the other three, but it was written about 40 years after Jesus' death by the disciple John, and he's kind of in a unique position because the rest of the disciples, we're not really sure what happened to some of them. They went off and they started doing ministry, and that's the last that we heard of them. A ton of them ended up being killed for their faith, but John was unique that he grew to be an old man. And as he is kind of ending the, or he's coming near the end of his life, I would imagine that the people around him would go, John, you got to walk and talk with Jesus. You got to see what he was all about. You've been telling people for the last 40 or so years what it was to be a disciple of Jesus, and you're probably going to die soon. I hate to break it to you, but it's probably going to happen. And so don't you think it would be a good idea to start writing this stuff down so that other people could, you know, continue to talk about Jesus and and we could have an account of his life? And so John begins to write his gospel, the gospel of John. And the the specific passage that I want to look at is in John 13. And in John 13, it is the end of Jesus' ministry. He knows that he's about to be killed, and so he sits with his disciples, and he goes, okay, guys, you've been watching, you've been hanging out, you see what I'm about. I need you to focus, because I'm going to tell you a fundamental principle of following me. If you want to be my disciple, here's what you're going to have to do. And here's what he says. In John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you. So this is like, guys, you know, like the Old Testament's full of commands. You got the Ten Commandments. I'm about to give you the Eleventh Commandment. Are you ready? This is a game changer. Here's what he says. He says, love one another. Love one another? That's not new. In fact, every major religion in the world has that. It's called the golden rule. We've all heard of that before. The Old Testament has it. It says, love thy neighbor. That's not new, Jesus. I thought you were about to give us something transformative. And he goes, no, no, listen. Okay, listen, here's what I was going to say. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says, look, no, no, it's not love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I get that. Everybody has said that. No, this is deeper. This is more profound. This is more impactful. I want you to love people like I have loved you. So the follow-up question, of course, is, well, how is Jesus loved? What does it look like to love like Jesus. I'll give you two categories. I think there is an attitude and an action. If you want to love like Jesus loved in your relationships, you have to have an attitude and an action of love. So we go back to the beginning of John, and we look at John, John's explanation of who Jesus is. He starts out with an incredibly deep, philosophical, theologically rich explanation of who Jesus is. In fact, people have been studying this for a couple thousand years going, this is, this is really interesting. Even if you don't believe it or not, what he's saying is pretty profound because here's what he says. He says that um, there's this thing called the Word, and the Word is God, and the Word was God, and everything was created through the Word. And then he says the Word was Jesus. 
And so what he's explaining here is he's explaining that Jesus was the creator of the world. And then he did something really interesting. Here's what it says in John 1, 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is the word and the world was created through, and, uh, through Jesus. And then he comes and he enters into his creation. Let me see if I can make a, a, a word picture for you here or an analogy. It would look something like this, I think, is imagine that there is an artist, and this artist creates a beautiful picture. And then once it's done with its creation, it steps into the picture and draws himself or herself into it. That's really what Jesus did. He says, look, the universe is my canvas. I am the artist. I am creating this incredible picture. And then as he watches this picture, it's animated, it's got free will, it starts to self-destruct, and he goes, I'm going to have to step into my creation and fix this. And so the artist not only creates, but the artist becomes part of the creation. Now, this isn't uh, like uh, exactly what I was going to talk about today, and, uh, but I can't pass this up because this is like, this is deep stuff, Okay. A lot of us, we were born in the Western world, and so whatever conception of God we may have is going to be founded on the Christian conception of God, right? Because if you think of God, you have been influenced, whether you believe it or not, whether you've ever been to church or not, you believe uh, in a version of God that is based off of Christianity, if you believe in God at all. But what he's saying here, if you are hearing it for the first time, is revolutionary, because what he's saying is, if this is true, if Jesus really is a creator and has stepped into creation, this means a few things. One, um, that there is a supernatural being behind creation. That this isn't all an accident, it didn't all just come to be, but this is actually a creation of a creator, a supernatural being. Now, you may not believe that, you may be an agnostic, not sure, you might be an atheist, but at least tells us if this is true, if Jesus really is true, there is a God. Second thing it tells us, I think, is that we can know this God in a personal way and have a relationship with him. So it isn't just this creator God who creates this thing and goes, okay, good luck, see ya, and then steps away and says, well, my painting is done. I want nothing more to do with it. Go. And goes and creates more things or whatever. No, this says that this is a God who actually cares deeply in a personal way and wants to have a relationship with his creation, which I think is also the, the touches on the third thing, which is this God, um, this God cares. So if I were the creator and I created something that's kind of spinning out of control and self-destructing, you know what my, my response would be? Wipe it out and start over. Let's try it again. That one didn't work. Let's give it a, let's give it a shot. But no, that's not what this God does. This God says, oh man, it's a mess. I'm not going to start over. I'm not going to wipe it out. I'm going to step into it and try to, try to fix this, try to make things right. The next thing that John says is he gives us the attitude or kind of the embodiment of an attitude or, or worldview that Jesus has. Here's what it says, it says in John 1, 14, uh, the second half. It says, we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And this is the part that I want us to kind of focus on for a moment. Came from the father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So it says that Jesus is the embodiment. He is overflowing with grace and truth. And in grace and truth, they're kind of concepts that we can understand. It's almost like happiness or love. It's really difficult to define, but we can give you examples of it and recognize what it is and is not. So, for example, grace. Grace is one of those things that I can recognize when I have it, when I give it, when I receive it. 
but how would I define it? Well, let me give you a really rough definition. Grace is undeserved favor, blessings. Specifically, it is love and gifts from God to us that we don't deserve. That's grace. And truth, truth is what is real, that which corresponds with reality. And so it says that Jesus enters in and he's full of both grace and truth. And grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you're guilty. Grace says you're loved. Truth says you're a broken mess. Grace says you're going to be okay. Truth says you're going to have to work on it. And if you're being honest with yourself, you probably are on, you lean towards one side or the other of grace and truth. I think everybody kind of has a disposition that is, doesn't quite live in that tension and leans one. So I'm a truth guy. Hard to believe, right? I, I like truth. I'm kind of a black and white thinker. Here's how it is. Here's how it should be. And if it's not that way, then it's wrong, right? I'm a truth guy. But I have other people in my life, my wife, who's more of a grace person, who goes, God, come on, get, you got to forgive. Give them a little room for error there. Now, if, you, uh, if you're a parent or you have raised kids, you probably saw this when you were disciplining your kids. You have the good cop and the bad cop, right? The good cop comes along. It's like, give me hugs. I still love you. The bad cop's like, but you're still grounded, right? Good cop, bad cop. And in fact, you may oscillate between which one you are depending on the circumstances. And so there's moments in which I am uh, a truth guy because I know that I'm right and I know that you're wrong and I'm going to make you see that I'm right. And then there's other moments in which I mess up and I go, I'm a grace guy. I'm a grace guy. You know, I need God's grace. I need your, no, okay. And Jesus is this, lives in this tension between truth and grace. He is both to the full extent we can see this in tons of different stories within the scripture, but one I think that it's pretty clear in is uh, when Jesus approaches the woman at the well. And if you don't know the background, kind of the story is that Jesus goes and he sees this woman at this well, and she's a Samaritan. And Samaritans and Jews, they hate each other, and, uh, and not only that, but she's a woman, and they were seen as second-class citizens. And so he begins to dialogue with her. He says, hey, can you give me some water? Now, that's two big no-nos. He's, he's, he's a Jew, and he's a man. And yet he engages in conversation with this woman. That's total grace. She's probably shocked going, you're not supposed to talk. Why would you talk to me? I'm a nobody. In fact, I'm less than a nobody according to you. Grace. And then he, uh, he begins to dialogue with her. And he goes, hey, why don't you go and get your husband? I'd love to meet him. And she goes, oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not married. He goes, you're right, you're not married. You've been married five times. And in fact, you're living with someone who is not your husband. Truth. Truth. That's uncomfortable Truth. Now, I've taken a couple classes in counseling when I was in seminary and things. I was never told to do that. That was never a thing. Walk in, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Adulterer. <laughs> you know, that's, not a, that's not a thing, right? No, ooh, that's, But yeah, this is Jesus, truth. And then he comes back and he goes, you know, you're right. You're messed up. You're dysfunctional. You are a mess. In fact, you have been looking for love in all the wrong places. There is something that your soul is desiring, and you've been looking in these dis dysfunctional relationships, whether they're your fault or not, I don't know, but you're looking for something. And I happen to be that thing that you're looking for. I happen to be what your soul actually desires, truth and grace. This tension, and yet he is the embodiment of both. I actually think that's what the gospel message is, is the gospel message is this tension between truth and grace. The truth is that we rebel against our creator, that we said, I don't want you as my authority. I want to be the ultimate. I want to be the one who is in charge. And because of that, we have now become sinners in rebellion against God and deserve his punishment. Truth. 
And yet at the same time, we hear that Jesus comes and he says, it is true. All those things are true about you. And yet I'm going to step into creation and take the punishment that you deserve, not because you've done anything. In fact, the very opposite. Grace. So we have to live in this tension between truth and grace. And in fact, when we apply this to our relationships, um, I think our relationships have to be full of truth. Because if they're not full of truth, they're shallow. If they don't have any truth and we're just shining each other on all the time, all we have are shallow relationships. And healthy relationships seek out truth and they live in it. The truth of who I am, the truth of who they are. And we want to be honest with that. See, this whole idea of seeking out truth of who I am is actually just self-awareness. Self-awareness is simply knowing, here's who I am, here's how people um, observe me, here's how people think about me, and I am aware of what is going on inside and what people are viewing from the outside. Self-awareness. And so really, it shouldn't be that surprising that Jesus says, you need to be living in truth about who you are and who other people are. And it's a very painful process, and yet it is extremely healthy Because here's what happens if we take the woman at the well, for example. Um, Jesus comes along and he goes, here's the truth of who you are. All the ugly, all the nasty, all the places that you've been trying to hide. Here's the truth of who you are. And it's only until you acknowledge who you are that you're going to be able to find the solution to your problems. You're only going to be able to find healing. You're only going to be able to find health if you admit that you're sick. That's the truth. For me... um, I I am thankful even in the painful moments that I have a wife who is a truth teller. See, we have this relationship in which I want her to become better and she wants me to become better. And so she sees things that I don't see, right? Because self-awareness is not one of those things that oftentimes um, we can discover on our own. It's about being in a relationship with people that we trust that can make us aware of our blind spots. And so my wife is one of those people, um, a couple of years ago, she began the process of trying to help me realize uh, that I sucked at interpersonal relationships. Great. Painful, but I can hear it. And it's because I have someone that I can trust, that I can open up to, and I can be vulnerable with, that she begins to help me with my own blind spots. It's a healthy, beautiful thing. And that's what I think our relationships are supposed to be about is we are supposed to be truth tellers, of course in love, even if it's uncomfortable. But here's the issue. We're not those people, and oftentimes we don't receive that kind of criticism, and we don't even offer that because our identities are far too fragile to be able to accept it. Is it's hard to admit that we are wrong, or that we need to fix something, or we need to become better at something, because it admits that we are broken and our identities can't handle it. It's kind of like a, a wounded puppy, and they're constantly trying to shield this woundedness from everybody else. But the only way to receive healing is if we expose it and go, okay, you're right, I'm broken. Let's see if we can begin to fix this. I have to admit it if we're ever going to become better. I know families that just ignore families, relationships, marriages, that ignore the issues because they think that that is the loving thing to do. For some reason in popular culture, we have this idea that if you love me, you will accept me the way that I am, just as I am. Don't try to fix me. Don't try to change me. And when I hear that, I go, that is so dumb. That is so stupid. Because what if you are a loser? What if you do need fixing, (laughs) says my wife? You know, what if that is a part of it? (laughs) I'm just kidding. She wouldn't say that. My dad would, though, but she wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's going to turn into a counseling session pretty soon. Um, no, because here's the, here's the honest truth. The reason why you and I are afraid to speak truth into people's lives 
is not because we're saving them from something. We're like, oh, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want it to be uncomfortable. I don't want to. The train is still headed towards them. They are still in trouble. Whether the reason why you will not tell them the truth about what's happening in their life and in their relationships is not to save them from something because they're still going to experience the consequences of whatever you're not telling them. It's so that you can save yourself from feeling uncomfortable or for jeopardizing that relationship. It's not about helping them. The reason why we're not truth tellers is it's because we don't want to have to experience any uncomfort or discomfort. At a uh, teacher-parent conference about six weeks ago, first one I've ever been to, pretty excited about it, and so we sat down in the miniature chairs in uh, kindergarten, which already made me feel a little bit vulnerable. You know, I'm just like, hey, Kate, so tell me. <laughs> um, and we began to pour over my daughter's, you know, drawings and how she's working on letters and reading and patterns and things like that. And, and let's just imagine that as we're sitting there, I go to her teacher and I say, well, okay, how is she doing with, her, with the alphabet? Is she learning it? And she goes, she is so cute. <laughs> go, yeah, okay. Uh, what about like uh, patterns? Is she able to recognize the patterns that I know? She has such a great personality. I go, okay, look, um, appreciate the compliments. However, it is not cute when you are 17 and can't read. So can you just tell me what's going on or what? Because I want in that relationship there to be truth telling. Tell me what's going on so that if there's an issue, we can fix it. Or if there's not, I can celebrate it. But I just need to know what, what's really happening here. See, many of us need to become better at telling truth. Others of us, we need to be better at being full of grace. See, truth tellers, if they do not have grace, they just become legalistic. And so I, let me give you the most extreme example I can think of as a truth teller with no grace. Is the people who stand on the corner that says sinners are going to hell. Okay, that is true, fine. There's no grace in it, so I can't hear that. In fact, I am going to reject that. It's going to make me angry because if you speak truth into my life, but you have no grace in it, no one can hear that. And so not only do we have to be truth tellers, but we have to be full of grace as we do. And grace says, here's the truth about you, and yet I forgive you. I love you anyway. We're going to work this out. We're going to figure it out. I don't hold it against you. In fact, grace is so extreme according to the scriptures that it says, even if you don't deserve it, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to let it poison me or this relationship. Grace is not earned. Grace is simply given in spite of what we have done or who we are. Second part is this, is I'm running out of time, which is crazy to think. I'm just going off of the top of the dome, and I'm running out of time. Here we go. Second part is this. Jesus' uh, love is not just about an attitude, but it's also about an action. When we think about love, we think of these uh, falling in love. It's something almost that we trip over. It's this emotion that's so, it comes and goes, and it's crazy. And yet Jesus says, actually, that's not how I would define love. Love is an action as well. In fact, we, we see part of the definition of love um, when he is talking to his disciples. When he talks about loving one another, you know what he had just finished doing? He had just finished washing their grimy feet. I do not like feet, okay? I don't even like my own feet. And then getting in those, just in the toes and stuff and just, oh, okay, right? That's just, oh my gosh, no. And yet Jesus goes, you guys should love each other like I have loved you. Scrubbing, ugh. 
And yet, that is the perfect picture of Jesus' love. Because Jesus' love is sacrificial. It is serving another. He says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be like me, here's what you need to do in your relationships. You need to serve one another. So this week... I had an unusually busy week. I was uh, out late a lot of nights because we had uh, rooted launches and, and I spoke at CR and, and different things. And so I got home fairly late in comparison. I'm usually home by 5.30. And, uh, and this week I got home, you know, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. And my son Ezra, um, he's a maniac. He comes alive at night. And so he is up and ready to party. And so every night he's waiting for me to get home. And I come home, I open up the front door, and he's ready to rock. He's in his jam jams. And he's like, "Woo, dad's home. And I'm exhausted, you know, I'm done, it's been a long day, and, he, and this is what he said every night that I came in, he goes, Daddy, will you play with me? Will you play cards with me? And in my mind, I'm thinking, son, it has been a long day, buddy. No, <laughs> you know, I don't, but what if, let's imagine that this was my response. What if I said, you know, son, I have this room in the house that is designed specifically for your toys, because you have so many stinking toys thanks to your grandparents. You have so many toys. In fact, I had two siblings for you to play with so that I wouldn't have to do any of this right now. <laughs> okay? It's been a long day. Get along with your sister and learn to like your toys. All right? I'm done. That probably wouldn't go over very well. Why? Because playing is not the point. He wants to be with dad. He says, Dad, let's hang out. Let's spend time together. I don't care what we do. You want to go to Home Depot? Sure, let's go to Home Depot. What do you want to do today? Let's hang out, Dad. Why? Because love is all about giving yourself, giving your time, giving your resources, giving your emotions, giving yourself to another. It's not about the toys. It's not about all the stuff. It's about, hey, I just want to spend time with you, Dad. Let's just hang for a little bit. See, that's what, what Jesus says. He says, you know, if you want to love people, it's going to be that you're going to have to give yourself away. It's going to go from being what I want to what they want, because that's what love is. Now, I am going to be uh, totally transparent with you, even if it costs me. I failed so miserably at this recently. So apparently there was a holiday like a week and a half ago. Um, Valentine's Day, I guess, is, is the holiday. Um, yeah, some of you guys are like, oh, I feel uncomfortable already. Oh, yeah, it's going to get uncomfortable. Uh, so I was, uh, I was working on the house and trying to get some stuff done around the house or whatever, and, and I got a, other things in my mind. And let's be honest, I'm thinking about myself, right? I'm thinking about what I got to do. I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about other stuff. And, and I walk in, and I see that on our table is a beautiful setup with two plates, candles, and a gift. And I went... Oh, Lord, no. Oh, we've been married for like 10 years. I didn't know we did this still. Oh, okay. Ooh, uh, you know, my first reaction is I'm going to make excuses. Like, well, I'm working really hard for you and the kids, and so you can't. It's like, All right, let's be real. I was thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking about you. And so I screwed up. I messed up big time. I missed Valentine's Day. Why? Oh, because I'm totally focused on Cody. Totally focused on Cody, missing the complete obvious because I'm too focused on my wants and my needs. And so here's a question that I think we got to ask ourselves, and maybe this is more of a, a guiding question, something that's going to help us be able to avoid some big mistakes like I make. And here's the question. What does love require of me? What if we just got up and we just said, you know what, today the question is, what does love require of me? In fact, let me... Um, let me 
you may answer that question and go, you know, today love requires that I, I leverage some of my resources for somebody else's benefit. Love may require of me today that I need to humble myself even though that I'm right. Love may require that I make myself available even though it's inconvenient and I'm exhausted. Let me give you a question that you can ask today. If you got up every day this week and you said this to the people that you love and the relationships uh, and the relationships that you have, what if you said this? What if you said, what, what can I do to help? How can I help you today? What can I do to make your day a little bit better? Honey, I know that you're stressed out. You've been watching the kids all day today. You are done. What can I do? How can I help? Kids, if you ask your parents, what can I do to help? They will lose it. There may be tears of joy. I don't know. They won't even be able to think of anything. You'll get off scot-free without even having to do anything if you just simply ask, Mom and Dad, you know what? You guys work so hard to make a great life for us. How can I help? They're going to go, I don't, I just love you. I don't know. I don't know. I just, give me hugs. I don't know. Even parents, it does feel like our whole life is focused on helping our kids. And in, in actuality, it might be. But what if we just sat down with our kids and go, hey, how can I help you today? How can I serve you? It feels like I serve them all the time. I'm cleaning up. I'm helping. But you know what they may hear? They may hear, don't do this. Don't do that. Why can't you get your act together? Why can't you be more like this? What if they just heard, hey, how can I help you today? How can I make your day a little bit better? They may go, whoa, we should play cars or something, I think. If they're a teenager, that's weird. But for me, it makes sense. Here's the good news. Let me finish with this. Is all of this seems like such a high standard, and it is, to go out there and serve and have this sacrificial love. And if Jesus just came on the spot and he goes, you know what, here's how you need to act. You need to be able to sacrifice and give and serve, so go out there and do it. I think that would be something that none of us would be able to do, at least not be able to sustain it. Because a lot of worldviews and a lot of religions, in fact, tell us that we should serve and that we should go and we should sacrifice and we should love. This is not unique to Christianity. The difference is, I think, the motivation. Because all the other worldviews are motivated through either guilt, God's going to be angry at you if you don't do this, or self-righteousness, here's how I know I'm a good person if I do this, and here's how I can impress God if I will go out and serve. And Christianity is totally different because it says you can go out and you can serve and you can love because of your why. Because Jesus is your why, it gives you a totally different motivation to go out there and love. See, here's what Jesus did. Jesus looked at the world and he said, Father, this world is a mess. These people are self-destructing. I mean, it is a disaster. What can I do to help? The Father says, I don't think you want to know because it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. He says, all right, I'll do that. He goes, no, 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 I don't think you get it. You're going to go down there and it's going to cost you everything. You're going to go from the creator of the universe to someone who is washing people's feet. Are you sure you want to do that? He goes, whatever it takes, whatever I need to do, I just want to serve. See, our motivation is not guilt it's not self-righteousness. It is simply an overflow of what we have already been given because we worship a God who we have rejected, we have rebelled against. We said we do not need him, nor do we want him in our lives. We didn't, didn't deserve anything that he has given us, and yet he comes down and says, how can I serve you as you reject me? See, when we realize 
what we have been given, and we realize the example in Jesus that we have seen, it no longer becomes this rule that we have that's overbearing and crushing and we can never live up to. It just becomes an outpouring of what we have already received. Because the more that we embrace our why and we are motivated by it, the more that we want to go and we want to give it to somebody else. Because here's what Jesus is doing. He's not saying, go out and earn this. Go out and prove yourself. He's going, here's what I'm giving you. Do you feel that? Do you feel how good that feels? I want you to just go and give to somebody else now. As I pour into you and as you experience this love from me, I want you to just go out and I want you to give it to other people. It's not a self-motivation. It's not a guilt. It's not trying to earn something. It's going, this is what I'm receiving and I so desperately want you to feel what I have. And so yes, it is scary and it is a, it is kind of a, a simple and yet big challenge to walk out of here and even when you're driving out, go, honey, son, daughter, mom, dad, what can I do today to serve you? And you know why it's so scary? Because they might take you up on it. They might actually say, you know what? I'm glad that you asked that. And it's going to be a little bit painful because you're going to have to go, ooh, okay, it's not about me. It's about others. How can I love best? Ah, it might cost me something but it'll be worth it. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for just how good you are to us. Lord God, I, I pray that it, when we walk out of here today, we don't walk out with this to-do list of which we feel guilty because we need to love more and we need to serve more that our first thing that we would experience is that we have been so loved, that you have given so much and that it's just through this overflowing of our heart and this joy that we have because we've been given such a great gift that we just simply want to serve other people so that they can experience just a little bit of what we experience. And so, Lord God, I pray that that would be our motivation today as we walk out and we ask people how we can serve, how can we be of, of any help in their life, Lord God. And Lord, I personally thank you for helping me survive this sermon. Amen.